Good evening, everyone. Good to see you. Thank you for joining us today. So as David said, we're right in the middle of our bodybuilding series. Uh, we're looking at workouts in 1 Peter. And we're also, helpfully, right in the middle of the Thy Kingdom Come Prayer initiative, as David said as well, So, uh, which helps really well because what we're going to do this evening is look at sharing our faith, and we're going to do that um, in 1 Peter. But if I could just give you a health warning first for what we're going to do this evening because as the series is helpfully titled Bodybuilding Workouts in 1 Peter's, uh, tonight might not be that easy for us. Um, bodybuilding, if anyone knows, is not an easy thing. It, it takes hard work and sometimes it takes pain. Um, and my hope this evening is actually to challenge and inspire us a little bit. So um, it might not be easy and I don't make too many, too many apologies about that. Um, but just a little health warning before we start. So let's recap, because we're on week four. Um, so we kicked off the series. Tim helped, helped us do that by looking at living in hope. And he asked the question, where is your hope? Um, and we looked at what it means for us to have hope, and in particular, eternal hope, and that our living hope is found in Jesus. And then we moved on, um, and Laura spoke about soft hearts, strong bones, can't lose. And she explained what it looks like to pursue holiness in light of eternity. And then last week, Gareth came and he shared about loving each other deeply. And he said that the important challenge is not just loving, but loving deeply and using our gifts in order to do that. Um, so what does that mean for us? What does that mean for today? Well, helpfully, as if kind of craftfully coordinated into some kind of clever series, uh, we're going to combine all of those three things and look at what that might mean for us today to love each other deeply in light of eternity um, and to... Um, pursue holiness in all that we do. And we're going to do that by understanding what it means that we are chosen for purpose. That we are chosen for purpose. We're going to look at what it means to understand that this life is temporary um, and that we, live, but that we live in hope and that we love others and what that means for us. So let's jump straight into 1 Peter. Um, and I'm going to go to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. And here Peter talks about a new birth into an inheritance that can never perish, never spoil, or never fade. And he goes on to say that that inheritance is stored in heaven. Now what does it mean for us to understand that we've been given a new birth into a new inheritance that can never spoil or never fade? Now it's pretty cool, it's pretty exciting that we've been given this, this eternal life. And I was pondering a little bit and thinking, what does that actually mean for us? And I thought metaphors are quite helpful to us understand these kind of things. And I thought, maybe it's a little bit like being given a gift. And I was like, yeah, not bad. It's a little bit like giving a gift. And then I thought, let's just go a little bit deeper. Let's just try one more that might get us to understand that a little bit further. This is where the pain might start, just so that you know. I want you to picture a building. Picture a building. And now picture that it's on fire. The building is quite literally burning to the ground. And you, as a believer in Christ, have been pulled out of that building. You have been saved into eternal life. But there's people that you know, people that you love, people that you love deeply, that are inside that building they do not know eternal life. Their life will come to an end. What does that mean for us? What does it mean to know that we have been saved from death and been given eternal life, but that there's others around us that do not yet know that? 
It means that we've been chosen for a purpose. That metaphor has to give us a call to action. It has to inspire us to do something more. It has to inspire us to want to reach out to those people and save them and give them eternal life through Jesus. But that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. And in 1 Peter, he tells us this. In chapter 2, verse 20 to 21, Peter says, But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. This is where you were called. To this you were called. To this you were called. This suffering you were called to. And in chapter 4, he goes on to say, But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and God rests on you. Who in here wants more spirit of glory and more spirit of God? I know that I do, but Peter tells us that we need to suffer to get that, that it's not just given to us on a plate. It's not easy. Running into a burning building is costly. Firefighters that run into burning buildings risk their lives. Preaching the gospel and telling people the good news is costly. It's not easy. Saving souls is costly. But it's worth it. So I've got some good news and some bad news for you as we move on. The bad news, for some of you, some of you might think it's good news. I'm hesitant to get that, guess that a lot of you might think it's bad news is that everybody here is an evangelist. There is no getting away from that. Everybody in this room is an evangelist. In chapter 2, verse 9, Peter says this, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. So you, in this room, if you are a believer of Jesus, you are being called into light. You are being called out of darkness. And that means that you are chosen to declare that to others. There isn't a choice in that matter. You are chosen to declare that to others. So the bad news is that we're all evangelists and there's no hiding from that. In fact, as we were singing earlier, we were singing the creed. And I and many others were getting probably a little bit carried away, rightfully so, in declaring that we believe in Jesus, we believe in the resurrection. That's like powerful stuff. That has to mean that we then want to go on and spread, spread that and share that to others. So the good news is that you're here today and we're doing a One Peter bodybuilding series. So we're going to do some bodybuilding on evangelism. We're going to have a bit of a workout and see where we get. So... Back to the point, everyone is an evangelist. I think of it a little bit like singing. And don't worry, I'm not going to sing. Everybody in this room can sing. Not everyone is particularly good at singing, and not everyone is particularly gifted at singing, but everybody can sing. In the same way, we are all evangelists. Some of us might be gifted at that, yes. Some of us might be better at it than others. But we can all do it, and therefore we should all try. Um, so I, I thought it would be helpful to go to the font of all knowledge, 
to help us understand a little bit about what we're looking at this evening. So I went to Google and I asked Google um, what an evangelist is. And Google said that it is the spreading of the Christian gospel by public preaching or by personal witness. And it goes on to use the phrase zealous advocacy, which I love. And I just want to pick out a little bit there that it, the word witness, so public preaching, yes, so, you know, standing on the streets or standing here and doing all that kind of stuff, probably not relevant to a lot of people in this room, but personal witness absolutely is. Now, if you're a witness in a court case, you tell your story, you tell your facts, your information, your help to others to understand the situation of what's going on. It is the active speaking out of words directly to the situation that you're talking about. So, being an evangelist is not, I'm afraid to tell you, just being nice to people and doing good works. It's also not just feeding the homeless and loving people. I kind of want to challenge us to say that as great as Alpha is, inviting someone to Alpha isn't as far as you could potentially go in being an evangelist. It's great, don't get me wrong, it's absolutely great. I'm on the Alpha team and I love it and it's amazing and it's important. But inviting someone to come to Alpha is not speaking out your personal testimony to someone and explaining to them the good news that you have received and helping them understand it too. So when, when we reach heaven, God's going to ask us a few questions. I don't know that God is going to ask me, what was your job? I don't know necessarily that he's even going to ask me, how many homeless people did you feed? What I think he might ask me is, did you love me? Did you love others? And because of that love, did you make disciples? And did you share my gospel with others? I think that might be what he asks me. In um, chapter 3, verse 15, Peter goes on to say this. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Always be ready. Always. Not when you feel like it. Not when you're having a good day. Always. All the time. To everyone. To every single person. No one is excluded from that. Do you notice that it doesn't even actually say, it says always be ready. It doesn't say, um, so it doesn't say you are ready. It doesn't actually say that you're just ready to go, which to me implies that it needs a bit of work. It needs a bit of an intentional decision. Perhaps it needs a workout in one Peter. So evangelism is telling someone the good news of Jesus. That's what it is. And hopefully I've got three simple points that might give you a bit of an understanding of what we're actually talking about when we're saying telling people the good news. So the gospel in three simple points is the glory of Jesus, the guarantee of new creation, and the grim reality of heaven and hell. So the glory, just really quickly we'll run through some of those. The glory of Jesus, it's the good news that Jesus has for us. It's the freedom, it's the salvation, it's the joy, the peace, the hope. The guarantee of new creation is that eternal life with no more pain, no more fear, no more suffering, only love. And the grim reality of heaven and hell. We can't shy away from the picture of the burning building. We can't shy away from the fact that one day people will cease to exist 
unless they profess Jesus as Lord and Saviour. But also we can tell them about heaven and we can tell them about all the glorious things that that we have available to us in the future and here today. We can talk about the power of healing and the power of prophecy and all of the great things that we can call down from heaven. So that being said, knowing that we're all evangelists, how do we evangelize? Now it's important for me to say, I think, at some point that I'm speaking to myself just as much as I'm speaking to every one of you. I've been incredibly challenged while I've been preparing and thinking about this message. And I do not stand here in any way, shape or form saying that I have all of the answers and that I do this day in, day out. I'm here with you, trying to learn, trying to grow, trying to love others deeply. But I do have a few helpful thoughts that might help us on this journey. So we evangelize by communicating through culture and to circumstance. Through culture and to circumstance. So let's take those. So through culture, in chapter 2, verse 7, Peter says, talks about, um, to us who believe in this, that this stone is precious. Here, Peter's pulling out the distinction that we know that Jesus is precious and others don't. That means that there's a difference of understanding between people that know Jesus and people that don't. There's a difference of culture, there's a difference of background, And we have to understand the culture in which we are communicating to when we're going to share the love of Jesus to others. We're different, and that's okay. We have to know that. Every single person in this room is different. We come from different cultures, different backgrounds. We have different values. And that's fine. But we can use that to our advantage. We can use that to help us communicate well with people so that people can understand where we're coming from. They can understand that point. We can use that to our advantage. So two circumstance, how do we communicate two circumstance? Well, in chapter 2, verse 10, Peter goes on to say, Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Again, we used to be in that burning building. Everyone in this room at some point didn't know Jesus. And now we do. Which means we understand the difference. We know how to get from A to B. We understand the things of the gospel that help people in their lives so we can speak to their circumstance to help them do that. And we'll break those down a little bit further in a minute. And just to say the idea of communicating through culture and to circumstance, I'm afraid to say isn't a new one. I can't steal it from my own ideas. It's actually a really biblical principle. All of the letters in the Bible are written in that exact way. They communicate through culture to the circumstance of the people that they're talking to. So let's have a look at each of one of those in turn quickly. So through culture, people are different, we know that. People have different values. But how do we communicate in an effective way? How do we communicate in an effective way? So communicating to culture is not about what we say, it's about how we say it. It's not about what we say, it's about how we say it. And we haven't got time to go into a whole load of cultural theory this evening, um, but I have got just a couple of generalizations that may just help us kind of understand and give you a kind of 101 lesson in communicating to culture. And most of it is on generational culture. So boomers, people who are aged roughly between 53 and 71, want to know what does it mean? And this is, this is in general, this is uh, the way that people think of in those generations. So we think about that and then how do we apply that to sharing the gospel. So boomers want to know, 
Um, what does it mean? They want to know the detail behind the message. They want to know the detail behind the gospel message that we want to share with them. Generation Xers, who are 38 to 52 roughly, need to know, does it work? Does what you're telling me actually work? Will it make a difference? They want to know there's some realism in it and they want to know if it will make a difference to them. Millennials, who are aged 22 to 27 roughly, are curious, how do we build it? What's our part to play in that? What would it look like for me to be involved is the kind of question that they're going to be asking. And Generation Zs, the young people of today, need to see, is it, is it authentic? They want to see truth and integrity in what you're communicating with them. They want you to show, show them honestly what has it meant for you, and then I might be interested if I can see what it's done for you. A couple of thoughts just to put some of that stuff into context for us. So boomers, generally speaking, obviously understand cultural theory will fall well with some people and not with others. Generally speaking, boomers had to work pretty hard for what they had. They grew up in a tough area and they had to work really hard to get what they have. Whereas younger generations tend to feel a little bit more entitled because life has been generally easier. Does that change the receptivity of the gospel, perhaps? Does it mean that older generations might find it harder to understand grace? Whereas younger generations might perhaps um, want information to be spoon-fed to them a little bit more than older generations would be willing to work for it, potentially. Boomers tend to be pretty anti-establishment and authority. And I certainly see that with my parents. My parents aren't Christians and um, try my best to evangelise to them, don't always get it right. They don't like the institution of the church. Whenever I talk to them about bodies and Church of England and all that kind of stuff, they don't like that because they see authority and establishment as a bad thing. Whereas people my age, people um, that I speak to, my friends, they really like that. They actually think, oh no, I like that that's a big thing and it's got structure and it's got process behind it. They, they understand that because there's a generational difference between whether people appreciate organisation or authority or not. And Generation Zs, our future church leaders, the young people of today, tend to be more cynical because of the world that they've grown up in and they need authenticity. They're looking for authenticity in the things that they're looking for. They want things to make sense. They want things to appear worthwhile and look fun. Interestingly, 81% of Generation Zers list watching YouTube videos as one of their best hobbies to do, whereas only 49% of them say that they enjoy reading. That has to mean that the way we communicate the gospel needs looking at. How do we communicate to a generation that don't like reading but love watching YouTube videos? It's a question worth asking, I think. So it's helpful for us to see the culture of the person we're trying to evangelise to. What is the filter that they see life through? So to circumstance, how do we communicate to circumstance? Here's the thing. Most people in the world aren't aware of their sin. Most people out there that don't know about Jesus aren't aware that they're broken. So communicating to them first off that Jesus died for their sin might not actually be very helpful to them. I'm not saying that we don't get there at some point, 
But if you don't understand that you're sinful, why is it relevant to hear that someone died for your sin? It's a question I might have. There's a guy that I used to know. Um, back before I moved here, I, I helped run an employability scheme. And one of the guys that came, we'll call him uh, Paul, he was um, a sex offender. And he came to us and he was coming on the employability scheme and he was interested um, to find work and he was a little bit interested in church as well. So I spoke to him and um, as part of what we did in the employability scheme was evangelise to people and, um, and share the good news. Now he was a guy who was undoubtedly aware of his sin for obvious reasons. So I was straight in there. The first thing he needed to hear, Jesus died for your sin and you are forgiven and, and it is okay. That was the message that he needed to hear. He needed to hear where, one, uh, in, where Peter talks about in his great mercy, he has given us a new birth. That was what I shared with him from 1 Peter. But because he was a Gen Xer, interestingly, going back to culture, what he really wanted to know was the detail of how that forgiveness worked. He wanted to know, did it work for him? That was the question that he came back to me. It's all well and good hearing that, but how does that work? He wanted to know that. My gran, for example, hates the message of sin. She is not interested in it at all. By all accounts, she's a lovely person. She doesn't intentionally harm anyone. But she grew up in a Catholic orphanage and was bruised and beaten um, by, by Christians, unfortunately, for being a, a sinful child. So her circumstances that she doesn't want to hear about her sin. And by all accounts, like I said, she's quite, she's quite a nice person. She's not particularly sinful in a worldly sense, but she doesn't understand that we are all sinners. She doesn't get that message. But because of the pain that she's had in her life, she's had a really difficult life, she is full of hurt and grieving. So perhaps for her, what she really needs to hear is what 1 Peter talks about in um, chapter 1, verse 8, where he says that we are filled with an inexpressible, glorious joy. Now that speaks to the circumstance of my grandma. Because that's what she needs. That's her need in her life right now. So one day, yes, we'll get to the other stuff. But right now, off the bat, how do I communicate to your circumstance? Jesus has inexpressible joy for you in a world where you find it quite hard to live. And of course, with her being a boomer, she's interested in knowing what does it mean for her? What will that change be for her? And lastly, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> another helpful um, way of communicating through culture, something that might be good for you to go away and read at. There's a, an incredible Instagram feed uh, by a guy in this church called Toby Gamston called My Faith Is. And it's brilliant. I would um, highly recommend you having a look at it. And it's basically asked everyone, what does your faith mean to you? And if you scroll through, all you see is people talking to circumstance and saying, this is what my faith means to me. And I've got a couple just to read. My faith is what determines my decisions. That speaks to someone who is fraught with confusion. My faith is what gives me strength. It speaks to weakness. What it's, my faith is what my hope looks like. It speaks to fear. My faith is my hungry peace. It speaks to the endless want within us in this world. My faith is my primary root. It speaks to uncertainty in the world. 
What can you share of your faith? What can you share of what you love about Jesus and what he does for you to the circumstance of others to help others understand the gospel message? So we are all evangelists in this room. There's no getting away from it, I'm afraid. We're chosen for purpose. And it won't be easy. In fact, it's going to be pretty painful at times. But it will work. There's a guy called uh, Rico Tees who writes an incredible book on evangelism, which I would recommend if you want to get it. And he talks about the pain line of sharing your faith which I think is incredible, the pain line of sharing your faith. And as I was reading that and thinking about the fact that we're in a bodybuilding series, I was kind of contemplating on what that means. And I don't know if anyone knows much about kind of muscle build, but when you're in the gym and you, if you're doing weights and you, and you lift weights and your muscle hurts because it rips, it rips, the muscle hurts because it rips, but then it grows again and it becomes stronger. And the same is true of sharing our faith and being an evangelist. We try and we fail and it, it's painful, but we learn and we grow and we try again. It's not easy, but it's worth it. Last point. About 2,000 years ago, 12 people set on a mission to share the love of Jesus. They were bruised and beaten and persecuted and hurt and it wasn't easy and it was hard. And most of them were killed for sharing their faith. But they were the key instigators in starting a global movement that meant that 2.3 billion people on this earth can profess that Jesus is Christ. But that is only one third of the population and there's two thirds to go. There's probably 200 people in this room tonight. What would it look like if we got that? What would it look like if we had that fearless determination to share our faith? What would that look like? What could this 200 people do and achieve, not just in the town of Cheltenham, but nationally or globally? The impact could be significant if 12 people can reach 2.3 billion. What can the 200 in this room achieve? But prayer has got to be at the root, so that's what we're going to do now. So I'm going to invite you to stand and we're going to pray.